Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to episode two of We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War history podcast with me, Al Murray. And me, James Holland. It's a weekly show with World War II at its heart, basically. Yep, and each week we're going to be looking at some forgotten stuff, a person, uh, an event, um, as well as busting a few myths. We're going to be looking at some Second World War ephemera, and of course we're going to be answering questions and... yeah. Standing corrected where yeah, we've got yeah, things wrong because um, we we are fallible. Let's just put that out there right now. <laughs> I especially am fallible. I mean, I, I I'm an enthusiast for this. Uh, you're the historian, so you're the bloke. I eat fish and chips. You're the bloke in the trawler. That's the way I see it. Um, uh, uh, so, James, what are you up to at the moment? Well, right now I'm, I'm sort of plowing my way through uh, my own book, um, which sounds very egotistical and also isn't really selling it. I'm conscious by saying I'm plowing through it. <laughs> <laughs> when you've been writing it for six months, um, you know, at the end of it, you've sort of had enough. Yeah. But I'm hoping it's sizzling. I'm hoping everyone's going to love it. It's about the Normandy campaign. It's 10 years since Anthony Beaver. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've written it because I think there's quite a lot to say. Yes. A yeah. lot of well, new I've, stuff to well, say. Well, I've had a little, you, you, you very kindly let me have a little look at, look at, little look at it. And it, I, it's a very exciting, uh, uh, very exciting read. Um, but the proofreading phrase is really boring because you've got to you've got to go through the whole the thing all over again. Look at planet. all those typos. Make sure you haven't made any errors. Yeah. Well. It just yeah. takes forever. Yeah, and then of course it goes into print, and there's that typo that you missed. Yeah, and it's the, probably the worst thing you can experience. Which yeah. is one of my books. There's a there's a typo that I don't know why we didn't realise that we put the word lightning when we went whirlwind and there's a whole footnote about the Western whirlwind that refers to the lightning. And I don't know how that mistake made it through, but there you go. I love everyone at Hodden Stoughton. Right. So uh, (laughs) So what are you up to anyway? Well, what I'm up to is I'm uh, writing a new stand-up show for the pub landlord. Um, and Excellent. W- one of the things that has coming to be... Coming to Salisbury? Coming to Salisbury, yes, Excellent. absolutely. Really yes, good. I'll be wearing my hazmat suit. And um, <laughs> one of the things that... One of the things that come that, that I'm trying to grapple with, and I'm trying to... I'm, I think I'm going to try and write a book about this as well, or a polemic, maybe, mm. is about the uses and abuses of the Second World War in current political debate. And I've oh. got a song... I've got a song in the show called We Won the War. And the idea is that any argument you have with anyone, you can go, yeah, well, we won the war. So like, whatever, right? Which seems to be currently Boris Johnson's level of argument in talking about Brexit, because he is quite keen on sort of channeling ideas of the Dunkirk spirit. And my grandfather was killed outside Dunkirk, a place called Harzerbrook. So as part of that um, uh, uh, bit of British military history. So I'm not really keen on it when people wheel it out as an example of the pluck we showed, because anyone who knows anything knows that the Dunkirk was an unmitigated disaster or born of an unmitigated disaster. You know, it's a miracle, but it's it's a disastrous miracle. So, you know, I think that's not a controversial thing to say. So, Well, so I, I think, I mean, we could... We should have a whole separate podcast on Dunkirk at some point. Yeah. We can deconstruct the movie. We can talk about it. We yeah. can talk about that. I mean, you know, from my humble but, opinion, Dunkirk, that week from the from Sunday the 26th of June to yeah. the following Sunday is, I think, is probably one of the most dramatic, pivotal, pivotal eventful weeks in British history 
ever. Yeah, although it falls squarely into a pattern of um, uh, army emanating from these islands, runs into trouble um, uh, defending Britain's strategic, or the England, or whoever, whatever you want to call it, because, you know, this is the Elizabethan, the Elizabethans had to get out of Flanders in a rush a couple of times, so it's an entirely traditional event, Dunkirk. It's uh, expeditionary force runs into trouble, has to escape with break, at breakneck speed, basically. Germans basically. can't defeat you if you're not there. That's the way I see it. Well, that's true. And, um, you know, rule Britannia with the, with Britannia rules the way well, exactly. and all the rest of it, which but, but the does thing is, But the thing is, is in politi- it, it, so this is the thing I'm trying to write with the pub, pub landlord, is a way, of, a way of maybe getting him to admit that banging on about the war... But, you know, that when he says we won the war, it's certainly nothing to do with him. <laughs> we'll be exploring this most extraordinary period of world history through ephemera, through forgotten stories, and, of course, trying to answer your questions. So, uh, right then, we've had some amazing ones coming Well, in. yes, people people uh, came to the hashtag like flypaper. And um, John Lowe... Um, asks us a counterfactual question and and the second world war obviously one of the reasons people really love it is it is it offers tantalizing counterfactuals of every kind do you think germany would have won the second world war if hitler had waited a couple of years before invading poland no yeah but um you know that, that also there needs to be some conditions on that or some caveats because i mean does does he think two years later they'd still have a deal with the russians yep and the, Union. Yeah, exactly. Because well, he can only, in, you know, he late can only nineteen forty thirty nine. Yeah, he can only invade Poland because he's got to deal with the Russians, right? Um, uh, and, so, and, and so, if he hadn't done a, if he hadn't got a deal with the Russians in nineteen thirty nine, and he was then invading in nineteen forty one, would he have had that trade deal that he had, so that the Russians were able to supply them with lots of supplies and oil resources and, yeah. and ore and yeah. oil and all the rest of it? You know, so. There's a whole series of questions to that. I still don't think he'd have won the war because don't forget, you know, Britain and America were rearming as well. Well, yes, the the, the, the intervening two years and France, but yeah, the, yes, exactly. The intervening <laughs> yeah. two years, might France be might have had, might, France might have had two years of solid governance yeah. before that, rather than you know the the age of kind of thirteen, thirteen different governments yeah. in the nineteen thirties well, might have been over. Who and knows? Communist resistance and sclerotic um, uh, uh, military and all that sort of thing. It might they might have. Yeah, and actually, they might have. What what uh, Britain and France might have done is seen the writing on the wall, furiously rearmed. But and stockpiled incidentally as well, um, but at the same time, sort of coalesced the rest of Western Europe into a firm alliance. Yeah, yeah. So I, which I can really see happening. Also, and actually, I think also if he hadn't done a deal with the Soviet Union, I think there's quite a high chance that that Britain and France would have done. But I mean, the other thing though that this that that, that, that this, what this question kind of kind of I suppose doesn't really reflect. Is that Hitler's entire foreign policy and way of doing things was was about was permanent brinkmanship and gambling. There's no way he'd have got himself to the the point that he was in 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 August of 1939 and then not invaded uh, yes. Poland in September. There's no way he'd have surrendered that political momentum and put it on pause for two years. He didn't operate like that. And and th- th- there's the, his decision making is a series of dominoes falling and and. And gambles, and so you, 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 what, what, what I think is sort of unimaginable is the idea that late August he goes, oh, oh Christ, biting off more than we could chew here. Yeah, yeah. Because let, let, let's he was because yeah. he was, you know, he, he was successful with cheap victories, uh, foreign policy wise, 
cheap to, yeah, cheap to the German public. Yeah, you can understand why everyone, you know, no, no the German public was not behind going to war. No. The German public was behind Germany getting back its lands, its old former German speaking yeah. territories yeah. without a shot being fired. That's what yeah. German people liked. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard. <laughs> not to kind of yeah. see why to be well yes honest. and yes and, and and of course that's also why uh british political opinion was kind of squeamish about um going to war in the first place as well because you're thinking well they just well, they're because, just because they're the just... fact of the matter is in czechoslovakia you know in in the Sudetenland, they had been german yeah. i mean you know yeah, prussian yeah, yeah. or whatever yeah. you know east prussia in 1939 was a set yeah. separate annex yeah next to poland that was separate from the rest of germany you can understand why germans would want that to be linked well, back especially again, especially as especially as you've had, um, uh, you know, pe- self determination as a principle at Versailles, and then the Germans have denied it. So you've you've you, you know your your post First World War um, security arrangement has has a contradiction right at the heart of it. So right, so inevitably, anyway. I mean, so no, John Lowe. No, we don't think Germany would have won the Second World War if Hitler had waited a couple of years before invading Poland. I think the only way Germany's going to win the war is the moment they cross into Poland. Is it's a war of annihilation. Yeah. And Germany has to win totally and completely. Nothing less will do. There's there is not going to be negotiated pieces and things like this. I mean, I know there is with France, but overall in the in the in the war, there is not going to be for Yes, Nazi it has Germany. to be a series of knockout blows. It has it? to be knockout blows. And to achieve that when you don't have access to the world's oceans, you're resource poor as a nation, you're stuck in the middle of Europe with multiple potential access points for anyone who wants to attack you in turn, it's a big old ask. Yeah. They look scary. They look frightening. They have lots of rallies. But that doesn't mean to say they're quite as scary and frightening as, or, or you know, enough to be able to win global conflicts. Okay. Um, so no, John. Okay, what was the most ferocious battle of the war on the Western Front? Um, even if it only lasted two or three days, rather than a Stalingrad-type battle, Bastogne or Caen asks Bruce. Well, um, I mean, you could go. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I remember talking to Tom Bowles, who was in the 18th Infantry, part of the First Infantry Division, U.S. Infantry Division. He's from Alabama. Um, you know, he went all through North Africa, all through Sicily, all through Normandy. And he said the absolute worst experience he ever had was Arkan by a country mile. He said it was absolutely terrible. Having said that, Herkin Forest also was pretty brutal. Yes, Herkin Forest, yeah. But oh. Normandy, I mean, you know, if you take up all the all the casualties, German, mm. Canadian, British, Polish, um, French, of course, civilian and otherwise, um, uh, and American, and divide that total by the number of days of the campaign, the battle, which is 77, you get a figure of 6,675, which is worse than Passchendaele, Verdun, and the Somme in the First World War. Yeah. Which are normally considered as sort of bywords for complete slaughter. Yeah, complete meat grinders, yeah. I mean, you know, it was... it was, And actually, all the research I've been doing into Normandy recently, you know, the one thing that's... One of the things that's really struck me was just how unbelievably violent and brutal it was. And when you've got... Tiger tanks and crocodiles spouting 120 yards of burning oil and rubber. You can sort of understand why. I mean, I, I, I mean, in the Normandy campaign, I was. It's the, it's the, for me, it's always the thing that always strikes me as the sort of most savage bit of the battle, is the end of the fillets pocket. Oh, the God. fort at Chambois. You've had the fighting at Montormel with the poles. The poles doing that strange sort yep. of stand where they, where they've kind of overextended themselves. Yep. The SS trying to fight their way back in yep. to, to open the pocket to get more people out. It 
obviously the German army's horse drawn, so you've got you've got appalling carnage of horses, mm. um, tactical air force. Um, uh, running riot over the over oh the God. Germans. There, there is, it's, it's just, it is toe to bumper on those on those roads. It is ap- those roads are absolutely clogged. Now I've walked down that road. I'm sure you have yeah. from, from the the Ford at Moisy um, in uh, you know um, sort of Lambert and Yeah, and 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 it's it's about probably about 250 yards, 300 yards, I think, up to the main road. Well, it's yeah. not main road, but you know, quite country, but the, the joining road. And there are photos of that road, and it is absolutely just thick with broken vehicles, dead horses, dead men, everything. Well, I mean, you know, I remember it's, it's talk- unbelievable. Talking to a typhoon pilot who said that, I mean, it was a very long time ago, he said you could smell um, the, the, the rotting flesh oh. um, when you were flying thousands yeah. of feet above, you know, you'd, you'd be, you'd be, You'd go over the place in your aircraft, and and the stench of the rotting flesh, and the burning flesh, uh, w- w- was overpowering. And that, that you, and you know, this this the, the Eisenhower visited visited the scene, and uh, 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 yeah, it was uh, really revolting. Really revolting. Really yeah. So because a, a friend of mine, she goes on a holiday um, uh, near Chambois, you know, mm. where where the, where the Ford is, and 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 every time she's been on holiday, and they've been going there for twenty years, they find something, they find a they find a scrap well, of I'm something. Not surprised. I'm not because the carnage there. So, I, uh, yeah. and the amazing thing about that part of the world is it is achingly beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it is it is one of the loveliest spots imaginable. If you stand on Mont Dormor and you look down, you can just see the whole Falaise pocket spread before you, yeah. and it's just a it's just this little kind of Eden, this hollow ground, you know, sort of twenty miles wide or something like that, of just lovely fields and little villages and church spires and you know blissful cows munching on clover and yeah. i mean you, you, it is unimaginable what happened there yeah absolutely and and because of what happened there you can see why um uh, the allies thought they'd won by basically by by the end of august in effect had won well two, two two german armies are you know to all intents purposes purposes annihilated i mean they have at their height, they have something like about two thousand five hundred armored fighting vehicles, you know, which is tanks, assault guns, all that kind of stuff. Um, and barely two doesn't get out. Yeah, you know that by anyone's judge's judgment is an unbelievably whopping victory. Yeah. and you're absolutely right. Yeah. you know. And then they, and then subsequently, because they've got Cromwell tanks that can go fifty miles an hour, um, they then chase sort of them, race across northern France and into yeah. Belgium. And you know, it is a, a greater stretch of land taken in a shorter period of time than that extraordinary 10-day advance from the German border to the French coast in back in May 1940. I hope that answers your question, Bruce. Tony has sent in this question about a piece that uh, ran in the Times saying, so Brexit will all be about the Blitz period. And it's a tweet by Catelyn Moran right. about her piece. And she quotes, at the Savoy, the Dorchester and the Ritz, Churchill signed a waiver exempting their restaurants from rationing. The ruling classes continued to eat lobster and drink champagne throughout the Blitz. I mean, oh, really? Well, no, not really. Exactly, he, not really. Not really. And he tended to eat at Claridge's anyway. For, uh, it, that was his preferred dining spot with Brooke. But the thing is, the thing is here is rationing... Rationing... <sighs> Air raid precautions, because this falls into the same thing, is, is that air raid precautions and rationing are seen a part of this sort of government inveigling its way into, into people's lives. And rationing, of course, had gone horribly wrong in the First World War because they'd, they'd not been sharp enough on getting it together. So they were wargaming rationing and, and, 
in uh, civil service were in the, in the thir- mid 30s because we might have to do this again so they started gearing up getting ready for rationing and rationing was on meat wasn't it eggs fat so butter but that's... And certainly not in 1940 and certainly not in 1940 but I mean I'm going to put my stick my neck out and say that Catelyn is actually just completely wrong because Churchill didn't do that. No, I mean, di- I mean no, no, he did. <laughs> no, he didn't do that. But, 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 you know, the pick. The, he's the he's he's emblematic of of uh, world the ruling classes the ruling and classes. and everyone loves Churchill. So and, therefore, and, as a journalist, yeah, you yeah, want yeah, to kind yeah. of stick yeah. the knife and, well, in. And everyone and be knows. Doctor, and everyone sorry. knows he had champagne for breakfast and and all that. And where was he getting that champagne from? Blah blah blah. Well, the, the interesting thing about rationing is that rationing is very light in Britain, on the whole, really. I mean, I know everyone talks about it, and you know, when I was growing up, my mum was still going, gosh, you know, there's so much butter on your, your toast. You know, in the war, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Uh, um, and it is true that butter was rationed, but lots wasn't. Fish certainly wasn't. Bread wasn't. Um, and compared to Germany, which started rationing in, in the summer of 1939, I mean, we had it incredibly easy. And the point about rationing was to make sure that every, everybody got a healthy, balanced diet. Yeah. Uh, and... Some things were restricted so that you could free up shipping space to put in more tanks and all the rest of it, which is a good thing. But the interesting thing is, is that it was to stop hoarding and stockpiling by those who could afford it. So it was not in favour of the necessary of, of, of the rich and, the, yeah. and, and uh, the upper classes. And the other point about it is that if you were working in a factory, you got more rations so that you had fewer days lost to sick leave, uh, which meant productivity went up. So actually, pragmatism was the absolute root of it. Now, if you're in carriages or you're um, at the Ritz or wherever, and you're an upper-class restaurant, yeah, sure, if you're prepared to, if you're as a punter, you're prepared to pay a little bit more, then you can get your lobster thermidor because that hasn't been rationed. And the reason they've still got champagne and wine is because these places have vast cellars and they haven't run out. I mean, you know, new stocks aren't coming in across the channel, of course, mm. once the war begins, but they haven't run out yet. Well, and of they course, last years. And, and I mean, the, the other economic lever, the, 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 those wines will be becoming, be becoming more expensive, but, but it's rich people in those restaurants anyway. So, yeah, nothing's changed with the war, nothing's changed since the war. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you want to go and have a nice slap-up four-course dinner at the garages, it's still going yeah. to cost you. Yeah. Yes, I have done... A friend of mine used to be the chef there, Head chef there, and we did a chef's table. This is a dissolute story. We at the end of one of my big tours, I took uh, everyone who'd worked on the tour, and we went we went and sat in the kitchen for chef's table. And we got to the end of lunch, and the chef bet us that we couldn't keep going till dinner, and then he'd make us whatever we wanted. So he did us. <laughs> we stayed put, and he did us um, beef Wellington with chips. Um, <laughs> they don't do chips at Claridge's, and he made that's us ketchup and mayonnaise. That's brilliant. <laughs> so, we're, so, uh, but that's because I'm part of the ruling classes, of course, James. And, yeah. uh, and rationing doesn't apply to that. <laughs> but this line here: the ruling classes continue to eat lobster and drink champagne throughout the Blitz. Yeah, I mean, but what you, they did. But, but what you definitely do have in Berlin is Nazi party restaurants, which were scandalously uh, uh, um, outside the. Because there were there was rationing, and of course the Nazi um, uh, brass would say, "Well, we're we're suffering just the same as you guys." Yep. And there were there was a restaurant, I think, in nineteen forty three, famously busted, because it was a, a a place where where people were swigging champagne. And of course, if Nazism is about is about autarky and is about everyone's everyone's tough and no one's fat and luxurious, you've got you've then got this public 
gangsterism. I mean, you know, we're, we're, that's not what Catelyn's talking about. But this is what that did happen in Germany. The thing that it absolutely did, and yeah. a lot of the leading Nazis were fat. I mean, there's, there's yeah, yeah, no yeah, getting away from yeah. it. I mean, yeah. Hans Frank, he was a fat knacker. Yeah. Um, so was Goering. <laughs> uh, um, Martin Bormann was pretty puffy yeah. and yeah. jowly. Yeah. I mean, they weren't a fit bunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right, so, so um, you've brought an object. Yes, I'm. I, I love this. Um, this. Look at it. This is the Deutsche Kleinempfänger, which right. obviously you will understand is the German little radio. And look at that, just in case you you. There it says the Deutsche Kleinempfänger. Finger, finger, finger. Nineteen thirty. On the A, it's, it's a finger, and. Uh, and here it is. It doesn't work anymore, but look at it. It's just fantastic. Oh, I mean, uh, that's... Right, so this that's, that's so, pure so, Nazi well, let's, let's, let's describe it then. So it's a Bakelite box. Yes. Probably, uh, that's sort of it's, 10, in, ten inches square, isn't it? Nine inches square. by four inches nine, by four inches. Okay, right, good, right. And on the front is a... Is a right, rather, nine inches by nine inches by four inches. And there's a, there's a tan grill on the front. There's a swastika. There's and a, a swastika. And an eagle. And, a, and, and an eagle. Yeah, and there's, your, there's the volume. Switch it on here. And, and a tuning dial. Yeah. I mean, you can tune it all you like, but you're still going to get the same old Nazi yeah. stuff. And um, it's a, it's a, is this a home radio? Well, this, I, I think this is absolutely amazing because although to you and I, this still looks, you know, this is nine inches by nine inches by four. It looks quite big. This is about as pioneering as the arrival of the iPod when that comes in. It really is, because radios in the 1930s are huge, great beasts made yeah. up of sort of, you know, lovely walnut lacquer, uh, and they're huge, and they're expensive, and they're for the elites, and, yes, they, and they, they're a massive, great box. And you and your family sit next to them in your you chairs. You sit next to them, yeah. And, 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 and look at them. Right, yeah, this in, is... What you see in photos. The whole point about this is it's supposed to be cheap. This is a propaganda weapon. So this was known as Goebbels Schnauzer, his uh, Goebbels snout. Yes. I mean, really, this is all about propaganda. So what the Nazis recognised, and what they recognised really early on, is that what you've got to do is you've got to basically brainwash the entire population. And the way you do this is by just spouting out the same old nonsense all the time. And now it's not all Hitler kind of ranting and raving and showering everyone with spittle and bad breath. It is, it is, yes, only there's some Hitlerian speeches going on there as well, but it's also, you know, a bit of Wagner, a bit of light music as well. Um, there's comedy hour, there's a sort of, you know, you know let, let's get the Jews hour. Um, there's yeah. a whole load of stuff, and it's just, it's just constant radio, and they put these everywhere. There, is, there are more radios per household in Nazi Germany by 1939 than any other country in the entire world, including the United States of America. Uh, and, and even if you can't afford one, then... They have them in restaurants, they have them in bars, they have them in the stairwells of apartment blocks. I mean, literally, this stuff is just being regurgitated over and over and over. And Goebbels' big mantra is, repeat, repeat, yeah. repeat. And everyone just starts to believe it. And they start to believe all this stuff that's going out. And it, it is a form of mass brainwashing. What's really interesting about this, of course, is the Wehrmacht then go, hang on a minute, there's all these really small radios. That's really cool. Because yeah. if you've got small radios, we can put them in our Panzer. We can put them in our half-track. We can put them in our groovy BMW and sidecar yeah. um, motorbike. And, and so what you get is the Panzer division that can communicate with itself. So how many stations? Are we talking just... just yeah. Basically, the state station. You see, because my grandfather, um, at the end of the war, was working with um, the political warfare establishment. Yeah. Um, with Sefton Delma doing black radio. And uh, they would run radio stations. Um, 
that would compete with German state radio and and uh, and they'd go in on the same wavelength and broadcast stuff about uh, corruption and scandal and all this sort of thing, but dressed up as the, oh look there's and now last last time we had a couple of Chinooks flying past my house and now we have a couple of Apaches. Yeah, nice. That's interesting. <laughs> anyway. Uh, 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 yeah, so they ran. They ran these complete radio stations. It, uh, Sefton Delmer was the was the guy who ran this thing. Who was a Daily Express uh, journalist who, in the thirties, had been uh, who'd followed. I was actually very very close to the Nazi Party in the thirties. Had sort of inveigled his way in and and was reporting on it from the inside. And during the war, he was he was co opted by. Um, by the Foreign Office to to, to run these because he knew because he knew the Nazi mindset was the idea. My grandfather worked with him, and they would do a German radio station that would broadcast black radio into Germany with with identical news programs, but with you know what was actually going on, um, what what defeats the German army was uh, uh, suffering, how corrupt how corruption was rife in the Nazi Party, all that sort of thing. So, as well as being a like a, a German propaganda weapon. It then became the radio. Then became an Allied propaganda weapon in in return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, BBC was absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. B- BBC was up to its neck in it, but also, in, and it's in it's in uh, Woburn. At Woburn, they ran a radio station where they where they beamed this stuff back and ref- sent it back. And you you because famously, there's the thing with the with the night um, night fighter controllers where the the uh, the British would get in on the night fighter controller wave band, and you'd have German speaker, German speaking women uh, here in the UK saying, "Oh, you know, don't don't go. There's not an air raid in Hamburg. Wherever you've been told to go, it's not there. Go to Essen. That's where the Allies are turning up." And 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 the German fighter pilots would hear that and, and redirect. And you ended up with people arguing with each other on the night fighter controller band, saying, "I'm the real night fighter controller," and the one in the UK going, "No, no, no, I am." <laughs> uh, in a kind of in a I'm Brian and so's my wife Monty yeah, Python yeah, yeah. style because because the, of course radio isn't encrypted like, no. you know you have encrypted channels now and all that sort of thing it's all open so uh, uh, fascinating that this is this is the mouthpiece of Nazism but then that gets gets, then used gets back against subverted them. against them as the war progresses <coughs> and also there's Lord Haw Haw who's the sort of the British guy who yeah who well, uh, Irish Irish of course yeah, yeah. but yeah who who um, uh, who who's doing broadcasts on behalf of the Nazis. Then there's Axis Sally. He's an American girl living in Berlin. Yeah. But actually, we quite like Axis Sally because it's from Axis Sally that we know that our leaking of information is working. Yeah. Um, and actually, it works incredibly well before D-Day yeah. because we were able to tell what information is being leaked and whether it's being picked up or not. So actually, through Axis Sally, she's sort of going, well, I know you boys are down in, you know, whatever, uh, um, you know, down in Devon or whatever. And they're, they're faintly unnerved. But in actual fact, for our intelligence boards, it's really good news hearing yeah. her say stuff. So, who, Axis, who, who was Axis Sally? Yeah, she's um, I can't quite remember her, what her real name is, but she's um, she's an American girl who ends up sort of marrying a German before the war and ends up, you know, she's in, in Berlin. They they use her for calling out on on radio and speaking in English, well, speaking in American yeah. accent and saying, you know, we're going to come and get you. You know, Big Daddy's watching. So, th- so I mean, again, this is the thing that you've got to remember about the Second World War is is that. This is this radio looks. I mean, it's it's Baker like. This wouldn't be this wouldn't be out of place in some sort of hipster's um, front room, you know, with his with his record player with a big uh, horn on it or whatever, and um, uh, and smoking a pipe. It's actually two band. It's long wave and medium, right? Wave. 
but but they basically just put out the same old stuff. Well, so but you but what you could also imagine is is people tuning this to tuning this to maybe allied radio as the war progresses and, yeah, and, and it's their own source that, of actually. their own fresh source of information because what it's not what it's not is a pair of switches and one's Nazi FM and the others, <laughs> the others, uh, yeah. you know, the Goering Hour or whatever. But it's still amazing, isn't it? To see the swastika the and the eagle. It is quite incredible, you know. and it's and that that I think is that's the other really fascinating thing about this because because you know governments that feel that they can put their badge in your front room and then tell you what to think in your front room are, are probably the ones you want to. Avoid. <laughs> a little bit wary about it. Uh, do we really, you know, and if, if, if you had to have a, you know, if you had to have a, a, it's like being given a Tory party radio with only, a, or a Labour party radio with only, only that station, isn't it? It's, well, it, it is, it is just really interesting because the propaganda fools everybody. It fools Germans into thinking they're far more mechanised and far more modern and far more technologically advanced than they actually are. It fools the rest of the world as well. I mean, the French and, and the British are really, you know, they're not looking forward to any conflict with Germany because they, you know, the French particularly are really worried on their border that they've, there's going to be this over, you know, everyone still talks about the Nazi war machine when actual fact, nothing could be really further from the truth. I mean, you know, of the 135 divisions that are used for the invasion of the West in May 1940, only 16 are mechanised. So communication far more is the most potent weapon of the Second World War that the Germans ever possess. Yes, in, in the French. In, uh, and were then renowned for their... Their machine guns and their um, uh, aeroplanes, but it's it's radio is where they, in fact, reset yes. things in nineteen. Yes, because actually they're not they're not me- that mechanized. I mean, it's it's fascinating. But if you look at Whitaker's Almanac that was going on before the war, and you look at the kind of nineteen thirty eight, okay, it has lists of cars and how 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 how, much, how many vehicles there are per population and all the rest of it. And and when what you work out is that the figure is there are 106 Italians for every motorised vehicle in Italy, mm-hmm. despite having Alfa Romeo and Fiat and all yeah. the rest of it. That figure is 47 in Germany, despite having BMW and Audi and, and you know Mercedes. The figure is 14 in the UK, so we're doing a, a whole load better than the Germans. It's eight for France and it's three for the United States. So perhaps no surprise about... United States, but it's free, you know, it's eight for France. So France is the most automotive society in Europe by a country mile, which of course is one of the reasons why why the Germans actually do really well, because when their panzers run out of fuel, there's lots of petrol stations and they just sort of go, you know, fill her up, please, Jean Allaire, um, bitter. Yeah. Uh, and, and they and do. The, and then the following year, they when discover they're going to the Union, there aren't any in Russia. Yes, yeah. but of course, what the Germans are thinking <laughs> is, is, you know, we've just beaten France, which is a kind of superpower in the first world. And, you know, how hard can it be going into Soviet Union, which is a bunch of full of, you yeah. know, untermenschen and Slavs? Yeah. must be really easy, completely failing to realise it's a very advanced infrastructure of France, which is what facilitates their victory in 1940. But I've got this incredible photograph, and maybe I'll post it up, of a bunch of horses and uh, wagons and guns kind of washing and watering in a river. And... If I said to you, this was taken, you know, in 1882, you'd not doubt me. In fact, it's taken in July 1940 or June 1940, and it's a German artillery unit. It's absolutely incredible. And that's the real German forces. And the cutting edge, though, this radio. Yep. Brilliant. Right. Well, we need to take a brief break. We'll see you in a moment.
So, welcome back. And last week we had our first regular item, which is the forgotten thing of World <laughs> War II. And I was beating the uh, the drum for General Francis Tuca. Yeah. Al, it's your turn this week. I think it's only fair. Well, what are you going I, for? Want, I want to talk about one minute of the Second World War. Brilliant. Um, I love that it's already. A minute in Madagascar. Now, ah, even better. Now, the thing is, is at one point, and not, not for the minute, it was lasted a little longer than this, Madagascar was the most strategically important place um, globally in the, in, the, in the Second World War. And not a lot of people know that. And, and people don't know about this. This is a thing that, that, that's just not on people's uh, sort of big picture radar. And the, and the really fascinating thing about this, and Operation Ironclad, Operation Streamline Jane, are the, are the two, are the two, the two um, battles, if you will. But what you've got here is a, a, a really illustrative thing about where you have a, you can have a tiny thing like this minute, which we'll get to, and a big picture, and how you can zoom in and out. And uh, uh, what we're talking about is so Madagascar. We all know where that is. It's off the off the yep. eastern eastern southeastern coast of. Uh, Below the equator. Below the equator, right? And why it's important is Singapore falls. Yes. The Japanese get... February 42. Exactly. The Japanese get rolling. Singapore falls. At the same time, you've got a major effort in the desert. And shipping can't go through the Mediterranean anymore. Exactly. Because the Italians have, you know, it's access... Exactly. Some it's, just too, and... it's just too difficult to get shipping, and you know you you can't you, go through the Suez Canal. Yeah, and you, well, and you've written a book all about how Malta, Malta, you can't get past Malta. So, yeah. so getting say these shiny new Sherman tanks you've been promised from America, yep. to the desert, and after all, the Desert War is kind of falling. I think it's Anthony Eden who said, um, "I'd hate to be a general in, in one of these wars." Basically, you've got to hang on for two years until the stuff arrives. And 1942 is kind of the moment when the stuff starts arriving. You know, and Sherman's first appear in the desert in 42. So, yep, in the summer of 42, for, uh, I think they're just there. They're not there for Alam Halfa, I don't think, but, but they're, they're there, there for Alamein, yeah. So what 300. Exactly. So what we're talking about is because Singapore has fallen and the Japanese are running rampant, and, and there, there are those that argue that Singapore falling is based actually the end of British power, that actually from then on you've got to, you've got to get the Americans involved, Right. Because you can't, we, the, what the British Empire can't do is actually manage two wars at once. You could probably do a European one, but not a global picture. So Madagascar, all of a sudden, which is held by the Vichy French, because it's a French colony from 1885. And we should just explain that the Vichy French, so after the armistice, the French armistice in yep. June 1940, what happens is rather than being completely occupied by the Germans... Uh, the northern bit is occupied by the Germans and all the coastal areas and the Atlantic are, are occupied by the Germans. But the southern central third is still held by the French by under Ken- the command yeah. of Marshall. President Maréchal Pétain, yeah, and who's it, right-wing fascist, well, and, anti-Semitic. Well, a county, county, uh, and a counter-revolutionary government. They replace yes. liberty, fraternity, equality with family... Uh, uh, nation and victory or something. I can't remember the three, yeah. but basically it's a very deliberate, it's, it's counter-revolution. It's to, to, to overturn the legacy of the French Revolution. Yes. So, so, so they are, they're right-wing aligned and uh, Nazi aligned. So they're you, not strictly speaking in the war on the German side at all, but they are pro-Axis, yeah. which means yeah. German, Italian. Yeah. And anyway, the, the French armed forces such a left, um, thanks to Mezar Kabir, don't really like the British all that much. And Merzel Kabir, we should just say, beginning of July 1940, 
So what happens is the British, trying to show that they have no intention of throwing in the towel, show that they're tough, say to the French fleet, which is largely harboured at Merzel-Kabir in Algeria, the British Mediterranean fleet go, come over to our side. And the French go, no. And they go, come over to our side or else we're going to blast you to kingdom come. And the French go, no. And they go, please don't be like this. You know, we yeah. used to be mates. You know, we know you. We used to play chess and have dinner with one another in the <laughs> 1930s uh, and go to Casablanca and stuff like that. You know, please come over. And the French go, no. And so they go, okay. And they blast them to hell. And that's yeah. the end of the French fleet. But the French, it, it kills something like 1,300 yeah. uh, um, French sailors. And, you know, Merzel Kabir is not readily forgotten. Exactly. So what you have then is a, a, a Vichy army on Madagascar because uh, Madagascar is a French colony from 1885. And I should also say there are also uh-huh. three French forces as well yeah. who are pro allied under the banner of de Gaulle, ostensibly, yeah. Yeah. who are doing stuff in North Africa. Yeah. Um, they're With very, yeah, yeah, varying degrees of success. Varying degrees of success. And it, it raids on Dakar and all sorts of things go horribly wrong. Basis of Sword of Honour yeah. at the beginning of Sword yeah. of Honour trilogy by uh, Evelyn War. Exactly. So Madagascar, now now that you have um, the, the Japanese heading west, in effect, yes. um, let's, imagine, uh, the, let's imagine a moment, and this is a sort of counterfactual, um, uh, yeah, so we are going to get some French on French action because that has... In Syria. Yeah, in, exactly. In July, June, July 1941. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's, there, have, there has been this sort of uh, collision of the legacy of French colonialism and, and the outcome of, uh, of, of uh, May, June 1940. So, so Madagascar, if you can imagine Axis Corporation where the Kriegsmarine say to the, say to the Japanese... And the Vichy French, how about we put a U-boat base on Madagascar? And then that is the end of a joined-up global campaign for the Allies. Because then the Cape's threatened. You can't send your ships full of Sherman tanks round the Cape of Good Hope. Yeah, the only way you could counter that is by sending vast amounts of your naval forces there, which you, frankly, they've already can't afford. Can't afford to do. Because you need them in the Atlantic, you need them in the Far East. Right, so... What, so obviously now Madagascar, we painted the picture, is the most important place strategically in the world in this brief window. Because if the, if the Japanese get there or the Vichy, Vichy French decide to make an accommodation with the Germans or, or, or Japanese uh, submarines get to, get to operate out of Madagascar, your desert campaign is screwed. You, you aren't, I mean, and that could be, that could take you to, Iran, to uh, Iraqi oil fields if the Germans break through that way. And then the entire balance of global power in the course of the war could change dramatically. Yep. So, you know, we're in a something must be done situation, but the Allies have not yet reached a shipbuilding capacity to put a fleet together. You know, that's at least a, at least a year away. So they have to scrape together an, a, a, an amphibious force to take Madagascar. And take it quick before those U-boats exactly. turned up and exactly. the pesky Japanese exactly. turned up. Now, so, so what you end up with is the 5th of May 1942 is Operation uh, Ironclad, which is Great this, name. Yeah, per, proper name. I mean, it's not quite like, it's not quite an American operation name where it's called, you know, Operation uh, Enduring Liberty or whatever. Uh, uh, you know, I mean... But I, it's quite I, good. Yeah, it's quite good. But I do like, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of... Um, Modern British uh, military operations, they have sort of names like Operation Grapple or Telic or they, they, they don't give anything away, not like Enduring Eagle of uh, Liberty <laughs> or whatever, like American ones. So I always think the Americans set themselves up a little bit for it going wrong. Anyway, so this fleet's put together, a task force is put together, and it's got um, Rhodesian forces in it, as they were at the time, South African, you've got Australian ships, 
We've got Dutch ships, a whole thing scraped together. And a bit of the fifth division. Yeah, exactly. Fragments from all over put together and invade Madagascar to fight the, the Vichy French. And uh, the initial battle goes goes really quickly and uh, and the the, French, the Vichy French are overpowered, but retreat. And Madagascar's a great long, great, Big old great place. long jungle island. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing, this. So they fight this retreating action uh, down the island and with booby traps and roadblocks and all this sort of thing. And the Vichy French keep fighting until six months later, exactly six months and one minute after they're first engaged in combat, the French general signs a surrender, or an, arm, an armistice in fact, and he signs it at one minute past midnight. And the reason he does it one minute past midnight is so that his lads get their war pension. It's brilliant. It's right? just brilliant. Because if you've it? been a French soldier in the field for more than six months, fighting for more than six months, you get a life battle pension. Isn't that amazing? And, and, and then, of course, de Gaulle, and, you know, because in the run up to this, there's been this look, just hand the island over and you, you'll, get, you'll get amnesty and. You can you can do what you want. You can go back to France. You can be part of the free French part of the free French forces. Do what you like, and they refuse. Obviously, they refuse point blank. So you get this great long you get this great long engagement, and it, and it's pointed out that those French soldiers, those uh, Vichy French soldiers, fought for lo- with the longest fighting group of French soldiers in the whole of the Second World War. They fought longer than the than the French army, the French soldiers um, uh, uh, in. In 1940, they stuck it out longer than the the, the French army Absolutely. did against the Germans, and 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 of course De Gaulle has to accommodate them and has to pay their pensions, and it's Absolutely. it's just brilliant. Why hasn't William Boyd written a novel about this? Well, he, well, it, it's completely William Boyd, isn't it? Is it? He's hundred percent William Boyd. But 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 obviously then what? So so once once Madagascar's been conquered, you know this moment of strategic importance passes, but what you've got is the Allies. It, it, you know, mid nineteen forty two, it shows how only only a year later you look at you know you look at Sicily, and then on to Italy, how the the, the leaps and bounds that they were making uh, that they made in that time. But you know this is the be- the best they could do in nineteen in mid nineteen forty two, and how quickly they developed. Yeah, because you know if you think of of Britain and the United States being a sort of ground zero in yeah. June 1940. So the British have just come back from Dunkirk. They've left all their kit behind. Yeah. The Americans have started the war really, really slowly. You know, they've, they've got tiny, tiny army. They're yeah. isolationist, all the rest of it. 19th in the largest in the world. They've got 74 fighter planes and, you know, about 14 tanks or something. Yeah. So they have to start from scratch. The British have never intended to have a large army at all because that's what the French do. They're yeah. their alliance and they have a big army. Yeah. You know, Britain will do naval power and air power. Yeah. That's what we do. So suddenly they've had to change everything and completely adjust their whole strategy, completely redirect their whole war industry. Then in the middle of that, the Japanese enter. So you've got to deal with that as well. Mm. To get to the point from June 1940 to July 1943 and the invasion of Sicily, with that vast arsenal of tanks and landing craft and landing ships and airborne troops and special yeah. forces and all the rest of it is absolutely unbelievable. And anyone who says that the Allies are slow and stodgy really needs their head examining because it's, it's absolutely incredible. And when you think about World War II, and okay, if you're Germans or, or you're Soviet Union, you don't have to worry about anything too amphibious. Mm. 
But for the Allies, it's all about amphibious warfare. And we're so focused on land warfare. And yet literally all of it has to happen by sea. Whether you're going to yes. North Africa, whether you're going to Sicily, whether you're going to southern Italy, D-Day, the whole Pacific campaign, all that island hopping, it's just yeah. amazing. And just the, the logistics of it just make your head hurt. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I'm, I'm due to be heading to Guadalcanal pretty oh, soon, right. which oh, I'm brilliant. very, very excited about. Um, another pivotal campaign in the whole war and probably the... The, the, the moment that the war in the Pacific changes, I think. I mean, you can yeah. argue about Midway or whether it's yeah. Guadalcanal, but Guadalcanal is a really, really important yeah. moment. Um, and, and it's just incredible what happens there and how, I mean, even today, the, the film crew are saying it's going to take 40 hours to get there and back, you know, to get there and then 40 hours back again. So really? just imagine trying to organise a war there. Well, but this, well, this is the thing, isn't it? Is that, is that very often the, the Second World War is thought in terms of air power and the air, the air power is the thing that's the thing that's different. But if you if you again, if you zoom out of this, this is this this could be something from the Seven Years War. This could be something from the Napoleonic Wars. This is a, an amphibious descent on a French colony um, by Royal Marines and arguably, you know, mercenary forces from other other parts of the world attached to the British Empire. It, 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 you know, if you very often, I think we view the the Second World War here domestically gets viewed for a, through a prism of what we did, what the British did, or the English did, and what happened in the cities here and the People's War and all that sort of thing. This is a this is a this is a completely different global set of global plates being spun. South African Air Force, and in fact, the, the Japanese actually turned up during during uh, just after the invasion. Three submarines turned up and tried to sink. Damaged um, uh, one of the one of the warships, British warships, HMS Ramillies. They turned up and they they made an appearance. The Japanese in this, which is an echo of of, of what could have happened if 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 Japanese submarine forces had had come out of here. If, the, if this global way of looking at the war, because because very often you, people think Dunkirk D Day, but you you don't get you you don't get you get no D Day without this problem being solved. Because you don't get D-Day without North Africa being tidied up and without practising amphibious landings in Sicily and then practising them again in, in Italy. Because that, that, that's as big an effort as D-Day. So, so well, actually, of, more, more men landed on D-Day for, for Sicily in July 1943 than actually landed on D-Day in Normandy. Well, there you go. There's, so in terms of men deposited, yeah. it's the biggest amphibious invasion ever. Trump's Normandy. Well... There you go. There, there's a there's a thing. But I just you just, just imagine you're you just, just imagine you're fried egg right over there. <laughs> but, but but just imagine, just imagine you're in you know you're in fifth division. So you, you know, and you're from I don't know, maybe you're somewhere from northern England or central, mm. you know, from the Midlands. Suddenly you get out to to Africa and Egypt, and that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty strange and 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 different. Yeah. The next thing you know, you're on a ship and you're you're landing in Madagascar with all those lemurs and yeah. Toucans and, and angry parrots. Fr- an angry Frenchman. An angry Frenchman. I mean, <laughs> crikey. Oh, well. well, we've travelled from the Ritz to Madagascar. I think that's enough air miles for one week. Um, please do subscribe, give us a rating, and leave us a review. And send us your questions and stories. On Twitter, use the hashtag WeHaveWays. James, this has been uh, fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. See you soon, ladies and gents.